Okay, last week we started a series on the book of Genesis. Uh, If you've been watching the news this week, you know that there are more and more discussions about what it means that these uh, pictures from from the space telescope have told us that uh, there's problems with the Big Bang Theory. There's problems with how the world sees creation. And last week we actually discussed and we answered the question, where did we come from? We know where we came from. We came from a direct intentional act of a sovereign God to bring into existence everything that we see and know. Now, there's another question, a second question that goes with that. The question is, now what? God has made everything. God has made us. So what happens next? What do we do then? Well, if we're going to answer that question, we have to look at chapter two of the book of Genesis. We have to look at all of the gifts that man was given in creation. There are five gifts that we received from the creator in the days that we were created, in those days. So we're in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to talk about that. You are going to notice in Genesis chapter 2, it is arranged a little differently. Instead of going in chronological order from the first day right down to the sixth day, It's going to start in chapter 2 with the seventh day. What God did at the completion of all things. And it's going to retell the story, filling in the details. Do not get hung up on the fact that it's told slightly differently. It's told more like a story and not so much like a breakdown of days. Don't get hung up on that. We're going to discuss it as we go through. The very first gift that you're going to see right here in Genesis chapter 2 is that man was given a model for how to live his life. Even in creation, man received a model for how to live his life. Genesis 2, 1 says this, So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. Important word. Evolution says things keep getting created. The Bible says, no, they were created and that was it. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. The word rested is to stop doing. It doesn't mean God was tired. God did not need a nap. He did not need a vacation, unlike most of us. He didn't need that. What he did is he wanted to communicate. He rested. He stopped. There was no more creating to be done because everything that needed to be was in existence already. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from his work of creation. The important thing is here, right here in the book of Genesis. Remember, this is being given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. So this is roughly 3,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago. God is telling Moses what he did and how he did it. Basically, what he's saying is, I'm going to be giving you a way to live your life, Moses. I'm going to give Israel a way to mark their days. And I'm going to do it by looking at the week of creation. Now, everyone that was in VBS went through the week of creation. They know what those days are. They know what was happening on those individual days because that was their final puzzle. So if we look at this, Our seventh day, our last day of the week, which for the Jews would have been Friday night to Saturday night, for us it's Sunday, was to celebrate God's complete work in creation. Today is a celebration. Today we look at all that God has done, all that God has taught us, and we rejoice in that. Raymond's going to have a fifth birthday. That is huge. What do you have on a fifth birthday? You have a party. 
What do you have on a 60th birthday? Nothing, because we don't want to talk about it. I'm just saying in advance. Okay, we celebrate those five years or those 60 years or whatever. And we look back at all the good things that happened. So God was giving to man a model for how to live his life. But let's keep going. There was another gift that came right here in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, 4, man was given life. He was given existence. Before this moment, there was no man. There was no woman. And then there was. It says this. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time Yahweh, the God of the earth, made the earth and the heavens. This is the first time, church, God gives us his name. Prior to this, the word used for God was Elohim. Elohim means the mighty one, the mighty one or the strong one. You have all these other words that are, that are broken down like Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyom, all these different characteristics of God. But here God gives the covenant name to Moses. Now, remember before Moses had gone up the mountain, he had seen the burning bush, and he says, Moses, go talk to my people, tell them I'm going to get them out. Okay, Lord, got you. Now, what do I tell them your name is? He says, I am that I am. Yahweh, it's a verb in the Hebrew, it means to exist. God doesn't need a name. You simply need to know that he is exactly who he reveals himself to be. So right here in getting this account in chapter 2, God uses his sacred holy name. Everyone talks about believing in God. I don't know what God they're talking about because my God gave us his name. And when I say I believe in Yahweh, that identifies him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the Bible, no questions, he identifies himself clearly. If I say I believe in Jesus Christ, that is a clear, specific example. There are many religions that have imams. They are spiritual religious leaders. They have yogis, also spiritual leaders. And there are many, many of them, but there is only one Yahweh. There's only one Jesus, the Messiah. So that's important right there. He gives us his name right there. He says, Yahweh made, made the earth and the heavens. Here's where it gets confusing. Church, pay attention. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for Yahweh had not made it rain on the land. This is the word sadeh. Sadeh doesn't mean a forest. It literally means a grassy field. When God created the earth on that, on that day, he covered it with grass. And in the grass were all of the seeds that would become the plants, would become the trees, would become everything that was going to cover the earth, but they were still dormant. They were still dormant because God had not made it rain and God had not made the man to work the earth. Yeah, man was made with a purpose. And if you don't think farmers are important people, they're doing the same thing that God gave Adam to do all those years ago. Isn't that important? Farmers are the thing closest to God's heart. He goes on and says this, And there was no man to work the ground, but water, also the word mist, also the word spring. It's simply a, a, a word that means some sort of appearance of water. Now, if you've ever been to Yellowstone National Park, you've seen Old Faithful, the geyser, right? It goes off, and you see the water go up in the air. But what do you see surrounding all that water? Mist. 
You see all that mist coming off of the water as it rises up. So God created a way to irrigate the world without having it to rain. He basically had a spring that flowed up from the earth. There also is the word flow in, in Hebrew. And the mist of it covered the land and the, and the mist watered the earth. It made everything possible. It kept everything from being too dry. So there was no man to, to work the ground. But water and mist would come out of the ground and water the entire surface of the land. Remember, there's only one piece of land. There's only the Pangean continent. There's only this one piece of land that surfaces in the middle of all of the waters of the earth. So scientists got that one right. It just took them a couple thousand years to get there. This says this, then, then Yahweh formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. You want to know how special you are, church? This word, breath of life, only occurs in two places. God, the breather, man, the recipient. That's it. No animal has the breath of life. Animals are living creatures, but they do not have the breath of life, which is the indwelling spirit of God that God breathed into the man to bring him into existence. We share the same chemical composition as a dog or an aardvark or an ostrich, the same chemical composition. But what separates us from the animals is that God put his breath, his very spirit into us, and that set us apart. It's what made it possible for us to enter into a relationship with God. It's what gave us the ability to have authority over the earth. We talked about this all last week. So it's very important this happens. So that breath is only in there. Now this word in the Hebrew is important. Who's ever started a fire in the woods? You go in the woods, you gather the sticks and the moss, and then you get the rocks and you start chipping away. And then what happens? You see a spark. What do you do to the spark? You blow on it. You breathe on it, and the air ignites it into life. That's this word. God breathed into an inanimate creation, and his breath sparked it into life. It made it come to life. Isn't that amazing? We were nothing but dirt and earth, and God breathed into us life. That's amazing to me. And that's what God wanted to show people in this account, that they are unique, that they are special in all of the things of the earth. So many other things seem so beautiful, so majestic, so wild. I mean, the dinosaurs that existed before the flood were gorgeous. They were amazing, huge, gigantic creatures. You go out to the coast. We went to Boston one time to go whale watching, and you watch these things breach. They're magnificent creatures. We've been out to the safari parks, and you see all these wild animals walking around, and they're huge, and they're amazing, but none of them is so special as this one creation that God made. That's you and me. If you ever felt you weren't special, you're wrong. You are unique in all the things that God has made because you have the breath of life in you. So God, was, so God gave man a model for how to live his life. That seventh day, that day of rest, that day of reflecting on all of God's creation, that was given to us. Life, the very life in our bodies was given to us. We didn't evolve into it. We didn't come out of the ocean with it. God made us and he breathed into us. Third thing that God gave us, he gave us a home, people. 
He gave us a home. Genesis 2.8, Yahweh planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. Yahweh caused to grow out of the ground every plant, sorry, every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he puts the man in this garden and then he causes it to grow. He causes it to become this wonderful place. Remember the other word literally means sade, a field, an empty field. All of the things necessary for life were in the field, but they had not come into existence yet. Yet here, God causes everything to grow up. And in the midst of that lushness, God puts man. He gave us a home, a safe place, a wonderful place. And he caused all these trees that were beautiful in appearance and good for food. And he puts us right there where we have everything that we need. Notice there were two other things there. There was the tree of life. Man and woman were never meant to die. I mean, all you see on the news right now is death, death, death. And the people ask the question, how can a good God let so many people die? He didn't. He put us in a place where we had access to food that would keep us alive for eternity. We are the ones who turned our back on that, not God. He gave us what we needed. And in that garden was that wonderful, that wonderful gift. But right next to it was another tree. And that tree was very special because it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to understand this. This word knowledge is the same word that we use for a man and a woman on their wedding night experiencing each other, experiencing that intimacy for the first time. So when it says that you would know good and evil, it doesn't mean you would know it in your head. It means you would literally take part in evil. And what was the evil they were talking about? You're going to see it in the next few verses. It is the evil of rebellion. So keep going. The fourth gift. Man was given freedom... But for that freedom, he was given boundaries. Genesis 2.10, a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. When I look at this, the first thing I thought of is when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman by the well. He says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me and I would cause a well to come up within you and that living water would flow through you for the rest of your life. You would never be thirsty again for that meaning, for that purpose that you've been looking for your whole life. So many people do not have a sense of self-worth. Many, many people, and I see this with my students at school, I see it in people I encounter, people I work with, they do not have a sense of their own self-worth. Why? Because they are dry. They are dusty. Jeremiah says that the people of God have committed a great crime. He says, these people have taken the well of living water, me, my Holy Spirit, my scriptures, and they have thrown them aside and they have dug holes in the earth and they hope to pour water in the holes so that they can have water. But these are holes that are cracked, cracked. They're not sealed. And the water that goes in drains out. A lot of people come to church on Sunday morning and they feel full afterwards. They feel good. They feel strong. But there's a problem. Whatever you hear on Sunday morning can only sustain you so long. 
If you are not sealed by the Holy Spirit, if that Holy Spirit is not the source of water flowing up from within you, then all that you get here will drain away and you will be empty again. You will be drained again. People do terrible things because they are dry. They are dusty. They are broken inside. There is no source of living water in them. At least here, in this garden, God caused an artesian well, a spring, to flow up. Maybe it looked just like Old Faithful. This water that went up in the air and, and it was abundant and there was water to drink and water to fertilize the, 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 the lawns and, and, and the, the garden. And they had everything. But if you choose to ignore that and you try to create something yourself that will satisfy you, wealth, power, success, love, whatever it is you want to think is going to make you feel full and filled up, all of that will dry up in time because it's not real. It's not alive. See, the man was there. His physical body was there, but there was no spirit until God breathed it in. We, in essence, are dead creatures until Jesus Christ comes and fills us with his spirit. Then that water flows up. Then that Holy Spirit becomes that spring of living water. Just this kind of water that flowed out over the entire earth from the one place God placed it. In our world today, there's only life in one place, one person, and that's Jesus Christ. If you remember that, you will never go dry. But keep going in Genesis chapter 2. So man has freedom, but he has boundaries. The name of the first was Pishan, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedouin and Onyx are there also. The name of the second is Gihan, which flows through the entire land of Cush. That's today, it's modern-day Africa. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now Yahweh took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And Yahweh commanded the man, you are to eat freely from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now in Hebrew, this does not mean you will die that moment, but this means that death will become real to you. Remember, they have access to the tree of life. They can't die because the tree of life gives them life. So if you eat of this second tree, it should have told Adam and he should have told Eve, on the day you eat of this second tree, you will lose access to the first tree and death will become your destiny. That's why people die. That's why we suffer. That's why we have cancer. We have liver trouble. That's why we have all these things that go on in our lives because we no longer have tree, no, no longer have access to the tree of life. However, in Jesus Christ, we still have access to life and that very abundantly. Now notice this is before what event? This is before the flood. Everyone is searching, and I saw this on TV two nights ago, and I was horrified. We have found the Garden of Eden. No, you haven't. The Garden of Eden was destroyed in the flood. If you notice, Cush, Assyria, Euphrates, Tigris, all these names are names that the people at Mount Sinai would know. They would know these names, but these were not the original rivers. The original rivers were destroyed and lost in the flood, when the land was shattered and broken apart and the continents drifted. 
So he's giving them a point of reference that they can see. Because these were great life-giving rivers, massive life-giving rivers that all civilizations depended on. And he wanted them to see that out of this place, God made life that flowed throughout the earth. So they would understand exactly what it was. So don't get those things confused. This garden is gone. You'll never find it. These rivers were changed because they were submerged beneath the flood for a year. And what came back later was different than this. So don't get confused by the stuff they throw at you on TV. Most people on TV don't know what they're doing. So it's the fact of life. Number five, this fifth gift from the creator. Man was given a companion. Now every person here who's got a spouse should be saying, thank you, Jesus. Because we all know that without our better halves, gentlemen, what would we be? And the question is lost. Okay, just go on. Let's go to this. this. Okay, we're in Genesis 2.18. Then Yahweh said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper as a complement. Now, this word has the idea of someone looking into almost like a mirror and seeing their exact opposite coming back at them. Uh, a lot of people at, at U of H wear the little yin-yang symbol, right? One's, one side's black, one side's white. And they're like two complementary things that fit together. The idea of that is completely different than this. But it's kind of a symbol that you can look at. When it says that the comp companion would be a complement, it meant that everything that was strongest in the man needed to be balanced by everything that is strongest in the woman. You look at a proper working marriage, you will see two people who bring unique gifts, and together they form something that is much stronger than either one of them. Can I get an amen if you want to go home with your spouse? There you go. That's the truth of it right there. So Yahweh formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But the man had no helper to be found as his complement or his counterpoint or his reflection. So all those words carry some of that same idea. So it says, so Yahweh caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that point. Then Yahweh made from the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. He could see the man was overwhelmed. He could see that the man had no companion. He had no counterpoint. He had no other person to enter into the work of serving God with him. So he took the man and he took from him a piece of him. Not something strange, not something different, but a piece of the man. And from that, he formed the woman. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from the man. You will all recognize this as being part of the marriage ceremony. Any good pastor who really wants to drive it home is going to use this in the wedding because there's important words coming up. So if you're ever going to get married... This is the stuff you want to keep hold of. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife. The word is cleave. It means desperately clings to. Not desperate because he's useless without her, but desperate because he sees in her so much value, so much of worth, so much that he needs to bring into his life that he will put aside mom and dad. 
I mean, there's this show called Mama's Boy, and you just want to go out sometime and slap these guys because you're like, what are you doing? Why, why are you not obeying the word of God? You got to leave mama and daddy be home because you want to cling to your wife. Your wife becomes that other half of you. She becomes that complement, that counterpoint. She becomes that important thing. That's what's missing in marriage today. People don't value what it means to become one person because this is right and they become one flesh. Both the man and the woman were naked and felt no shame. Why? They were naked because they didn't need clothes. They didn't need clothes because there was nothing to hide. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no internal turmoil. When God brought the woman to the man, they saw in each other everything that they needed to become a unity, to become a whole. And in that, there is no shame. There is no embarrassment because you're not hiding anything. You're bringing your whole self to this other person's whole self, and you become a whole person. I once heard a man say, Marriage is a person who is half right and another person who's half right. You put them together, they're a whole right. No. A 50% and a 50% go together, they're 50%. 100% and 100% put together makes what? 100%. That's the important thing. You don't bring half yourself to a relationship. You bring your whole self, all of yourself. You're good, you're bad, you're ugly. Not the movie, you're actually personality. Put it all together. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's why God, speaking to Moses at Mount Sinai, wanted people to understand how marriage was to work. If the very first few verses tell us how to organize the week, tell us how to organize worship, this tells us how to organize marriage. One man, one woman, fully committed to each other, becoming that counterpoint, that reflection, and that is what it was meant to be. So here in the Garden of Eden, we see all these gifts that God gave us. He gave us an example for life, a model for how to spend our days. He gives us life itself. We owe God praise for the very fact that we are alive. He gives us a home. Whatever your home is, whether you got some sort of palatial mansion somewhere, you got some 40-acre ranch, or you got a you got a trailer sitting on a lot, whatever you got, that's home. Because that's where you have your needs met in, in, that, in that ongoing relationship with God. The man was given freedom, but he was given boundaries. Men are not free. They are only free to serve God, and serving God comes within the boundaries of that relationship. And the man was given a companion. He was given the ability to enter into a relationship. Man, watching all the other animals, watching all the other things that God had made, that was cool. But he had no way to relate to them. Why? Because within man was the breath of God itself. And you can't have a relationship with someone who doesn't have that breath of life. That is why the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together. Because there has to be the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of God in the other person, and you put them together and the Spirit responds by drawing them tightly together. I can't change physics. I can't change gravity. And I can't change how God meant for the world to work. So now we've answered that second question. We know now what? We enter into this relationship. We worship God. We do the work he has set before us. Now we're going to be looking at chapter three. And in chapter three, the most devastating accident, incident, tragedy of all time happens when men and women forget 
everything they were taught in chapter 2. But until then, let's pray. Father.